You are listening to a special bonus episode of Policy Currents, a podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. It's September 30th. How can the U.S. safely and securely hold elections during a pandemic? RAND researchers Jennifer Cavanaugh and Quentin Hodgson have studied this question extensively. They recently sat down for a discussion with Brandon Baker, RAND's Vice President of Development, to discuss their work. Kavanaugh and Hodgson shared their recent findings on conducting safe and secure elections, including the unique challenges posed by COVID-19, questions surrounding the increase in mail-in ballots, and the potential threats of disinformation and cyber attacks. With Election Day about a month away, we wanted to share some highlights from this important conversation. So without further ado, here's Brandon Baker interviewing RAND researchers Jennifer Kavanaugh and Quentin Hodgson. Jennifer, Quentin, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Let's get started with some questions. So Jennifer, I know the pandemic disrupted many state primaries this past spring and summer, and we continue to hear about foreign interference in our elections. How well prepared is the United States to hold its election this November? There's a lot of variation. It's hard to talk about preparedness at the aggregate level. There are about 8,800 different jurisdictions in the United States, and each one conducts elections in a slightly different way. And that means that each one has a different level of preparedness when we're talking about both readiness to counter foreign threats, um, cyber threats, as well as uh, challenges from the pandemic. And we can think about those challenges in three buckets. There are challenges related to safety. Those are specifically related to the pandemic. We can think about challenges related to integrity that has to do with fraud, disinformation and disenfranchisement. And we can think about challenges from security. And those are cyber threats, as well as um, other types of of foreign influence or hacking. On the safety measure, um, states, again, they vary um, depending on how much they've invested in things like PPE for poll workers what types of locations they're using for in-person polling. Some states are using big sports arenas. Other states are using much smaller uh, venues. How many polling locations they have open and the voter density in those areas. Those are all factors that are going to affect preparedness for safety. On the integrity measure, the biggest challenge really is disinformation. We hear a lot about fraud, the potential fraud from mail-in voting or in-person voting. But in reality, the risk of that type of fraud impacting the election is very low. Disinformation is a much bigger challenge. It's really hard for tech platforms to effectively counter the amount of disinformation that's out there. They've made some steps forward, but they're never going to be able to remove all of the disinformation. Um, There are are better uh, measures or thinking about how we prepare voters to disentangle true information from false information. Um, But that's still um, an area of risk um, that exists. Um, And then there are also those um, risks related to security and cyber threats. Given all the news about the Postal Service slowdown or being overwhelmed, should people who want to vote by mail be worried their ballots won't count? Is there anything that voters can do to reduce this risk? Sure, there's a lot that voters can do. And it's it's important to note that uh, in in some cases, they will already be receiving um, their absentee ballot uh, right now in the mail. Uh, And we've already seen a few states start early voting. So you always have that option in uh, being able to take that ballot that you receive and drop it off. But to take a step back, the first piece is if you want to vote absentee or vote by mail, uh, you have to make sure that you're registered to do that. And many states will actually and 
jurisdictions will have their website set up where you can check the status of your registration so you can understand wh whether you are actually set up to do that. Um, there are some interesting quirks of the system as you look at, for example, Pennsylvania is a, a unique state in that absentee uh, balloting is in ensconced in the constitution, but they also, which requires an excuse, but they also have vote by mail, which doesn't require an excuse. Um, and so they actually have those two that are playing together in, in, in one. You have uh, 16 states that do require a valid excuse to get an absentee ballot. And in fact, the state uh, Supreme Court in Texas has just recently ruled that the pandemic is not a reason that somebody can request an absentee ballot. So it really behooves voters to work ex uh, early on to figure out what are the rules in their state and their jurisdiction for getting an absentee ballot, ballot and being able to vote by mail and get that. Don't wait till the end. Don't wait just because it says that they can request a ballot, for example, in some states a day before the election. It's highly unlikely if you wait that long that the processing will take place where you'll even get your ballot sent back to you in time. Um, and that's not just a question of the Postal Service. That's also a question of those rules that are set in place by some states that really make a very tight time frame. So even if everything went perfectly well with the Postal Service, their delivery standards uh, for first class mail are usually two to three days. Um, so you have to keep that in mind. And then finally, you can always drop off your ballot. Uh, you don't necessarily have to return it by mail. Uh, you can drop it off in many places. There'll be drop boxes. They'll be available. You should be able to find out where those are through uh, the websites that your elections officials have set up, or you can even go to a polling place um, in some cases and, and give your uh, ballot to a poll worker in a polling place. So Quentin, I know you've spent a considerable amount of time focused on foreign influence and cyber threats within elections. How vulnerable is the election process to foreign influence or cyber threats, and could a determined group of hackers somehow challenge the outcome of the election? Yeah, I think that's the big question everybody has is to what extent are cyber threats and disinformation going to have an impact on the election this year? And certainly when you look at elections infrastructure, uh, as we talked about earlier, it's so diffuse and, and it varies across uh, jurisdictions and states. And in some cases, they will be quite vulnerable to cyber threats. Um, but I think what tends to happen is people think that we're just talking about the voting machines and whether my vote when I cast on a voting machine is going to be manipulated in some way. And actually, that's probably the least likely, the lowest uh, risk, in part because it's really hard to scale that kind of attack. And although people have demonstrated that there is a way in some cases to influence and change data on those machines, it really requires very close proximate access to those machines. More concerning are things like voter registration databases because they are online databases that are often uh, accessible remotely. Uh, and that is something that we know from uh, past experience that, for example, the Russian cyber actors were trying to target in 2016. Um, and so that could cause some havoc, not just in terms of creating uh, confusion on election day. You can imagine showing up at the, your polling place and saying, I'm so-and-so, I'm here to vote, and you're not in the registration database. You're not in the poll book. And that could be because you were your information was changed. Now, in every state, you can cast a provisional ballot. So that's certainly something that you can overcome, but it does create an additional administrative burden. Plus, quite frankly, it causes people to call into question the integrity of elections when things like that happen, that kind of confusion. Also, we just talked about websites being an important source of information about 
how to vote, where to vote, and so forth. But websites can also be vulnerable to hacking. And even if you can correct those issues uh, quickly, identify them, it still causes confusion. Plus, you have all the other outlets that people are going to be trying to push information. We saw this example in Kentucky where there was a fake website for people to try to register that was out there. That's been subsequently taken offline. But still, that's that's a continuing concern. And then you have the much broader information and disinformation that will influence, I think, how people perceive the integrity of the elections, and particularly this year when it's so hotly contested at the national level, presidential level, but also when you think about Senate races, uh, House races, and so forth, that's going to be, I think, a big concern for elections officials is how can they get the real word out there about what's happening, and particularly because when you think about the high expectation of a large volume of absentee ballots, we're not going to know the results of the elections on election night. And we've become attuned to thinking that that's what people are going to call the election uh, on election night. And I think that's highly unlikely to be the case. Or people will want to call the election on election night, and we just won't know because there'll be this trail of absentee ballots that will be coming in, including, by the way, overseas voters like mil deployed military members who are also able to vote by mail. Uh, and people are serving in the diplomatic corps, or just citizens who are based overseas who want to vote for president as well as other elections. I think one important addition is when we think about disinformation, there's a lot of focus about disinformation for, by, about one candidate or about the other candidate. I think really the most damaging disinformation is, as Quentin said, disinformation about the election itself, about things that happened on election day or before election day, about how to vote, about the counting of ballots, that's really much more damaging. On the issue of candidates, most people have made up their minds uh, on who they're going to vote for, and there's only a very small number of voters who are whose minds can still be changed. And we don't really know that online disinformation is all that effective at changing people's minds. Not There's a large portion of, of people who don't actually consume political news online, and so they aren't necessarily affected by that. They're much more strongly affected by friends and family and things like that. So when we think about the disinformation challenge, the type of disinformation that I think we should be most worried about is the type of disinformation that is undermining the legitimacy of the election or compromising people's ability to get to the polls um, at the right place at the right time or vote by mail in the right way. Uh, I think that's much more of a, a danger than uh, disinformation about one candidate or another candidate. Okay, Kavanaugh and Hodgson covered a lot of challenges there. And with the election fast approaching, time is running out to make changes that can address these issues. However, there are still some things that states can do. For instance, to help prevent the spread of COVID-19, election jurisdictions can shift polling locations to venues that ensure enough space to maintain social distancing. They can also take steps to ensure the necessary sanitizing of voting machines and provide sufficient personal protective equipment. There are things that you can do, too. Help fight the spread of disinformation about the election by being vigilant on social media and thinking twice about what you share. Be sure to double-check the sources of what you're reading online, too. And finally, make a plan to vote. If you're not sure whether you're registered, find out today. And keep checking resources from your state or county to see whether any last-minute changes to voting processes have been made. The conversation we brought you today highlighted research from RAND's initiative to counter truth decay, the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. You can watch the full conversation on RAND's YouTube channel. To access our truth decay research, 
visit rand.org slash truthdecay. The Truth Decay Project is a critical priority of RAND's ongoing fundraising campaign, Tomorrow Demands Today. To learn more, visit campaign.rand.org. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on today's episode, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll be back on Friday with RAND's latest research and commentary. We'll see you then.